Today is the 15th of September and the year is 58 AF. It is early morning and myself and the rest of the runner team 5 are now in the main camp of the Forest Rangers. We only managed to escape our run with the aggressive and annoying primate beings called Argapelters thanks to the rangers themselves. A scouting party was posted near the camp and they let loose a slew of arrows on the Argapelters who quickly turned tail. We managed to get there with our bodies and our supplies mostly intact. I thank the great spirit the scouting party arrived when it did. I believe we could have hold our, held our own against the simian beast, but not without taking a lot more injury to ourselves and the goods we were sanctioned to deliver. By the time we had made it to camp, now with the scouting party in tow, night had fallen and we were all tired and badly bruised, but none the worse for wear. I believe Charlie was the only one of us to come out of the attack completely unscathed. I was impressed with the swiftness with which she dodged the onslaught of debris the Argopelters threw. In addition to being tired and a bit beaten, we were all incredibly hungry. Kendra was the most vocal of the group on this topic, and after we had heard her say that she was fucking starving for what might have been the 15th time, Frank invited us to have dinner with him by the tent. At first, I suggested that we meet with the leader of the rangers instead of eating to find out the situation. Lydia agreed with me, although reluctantly. This conversation was followed by a murderous glare from Kendra, but that glare quickly became a sigh of relief when Frank interjected and said, It's late, and our leader, Rick, is out with a hunting party tonight anyway. He returns in the morning, and then we can talk business. For now, let's enjoy some food. I believe my friend Sarah's got some venison stew on the fire right now. It's her late wife's recipe, bless her soul. After that, Frank would have no more talk of runner groups or missions. He was much more sociable than before, especially once Kendra and Lydia began to discuss the game in the area and if it was good hunting. The stoic wall that surrounded his disposition melted away when he was in the company of his fellow rangers and where there was talk of good things such as food and hunting. Everyone was cheery that night in our little camp. We talked late into the night and enjoyed what might have been the best venison stew I have ever had and will ever have again. Kendra only glared at me once more when I insisted on saying grace and asking the great spirit to bless our meal before eating. This was brought with quizzical looks from Frank and his campmate Sarah, who had never heard of the spirit before, except perhaps the great spirit Wakan Tonkin that the Sioux believed in. Excuse my pronunciation. I explained that they were not the same. Well, I guess in a way they are, but they aren't the same in the sense that they were thinking. And to be fair, I did borrow the name for the spirit from the Native American Red Jacket's famous speech in defense of Native American religion. He was quite an amazing orator. After reading his argument, I felt that the great spirit was the closest thing to correct I would ever come to naming that which I had faith in. After explaining my beliefs to them, they said that it seemed to be a respectable faith, but the only faith that they had was their faith in the forest and the earth. And this is the faith that I can respect. Now shortly after dinner, I gave my comrades some ointment that would help with the swelling of their bruises, and we dispersed for bed. It seemed to be a good night, for I did not know what waited in my sleep. The dream was as clear as the day, and as terrifying as the long dark. I watched from an ethereal form floating above the world, and saw it burn. It was completely covered in flame, and it was not a cleansing fire with a flame of emotion, but a fire that was the embodiment of all destruction. I watched as everything I've ever known burned to ash, and I wept. I woke, sweating profusely. It was nearly dawn, 
So I watched and meditated on the stream in deep thought and prayer until the sun rose. When the morning came, I decided to start a meal for my new runner comrades and also for the rangers who had made us so welcome in their camp. I found that Sarah had already started cooking, so I simply spent some time talking with her instead. And I noticed that some other rangers were milling around and getting about their day, ones who weren't campmates with Sarah and Frank. They saw me looking and returned my watchful gaze with wary and distrustful stares. One even spit on the ground. They were not looks of welcoming. Don't mind them, Sarah had said, speaking up. Most of us rangers aren't really too trusting of outsiders. Frank and I know better. We've worked with Thorpe and runners before, and we trust you're here to help. To the other rangers, you're just a reminder to them that we're having problems, and then they're problems we can't fix ourselves. Us rangers are strong, close-knit community, but our downfall may be our pride. Luckily, Rick is wise enough to know when to put pride aside and ask for help. Not that it don't sting a bit, but he knows when the pain to our egos will pass. I thanked Sarah for explaining this, and then I remembered Frank mentioning Rick the night before. He was their leader, sort of a chief elected based on his skill and prowess as a ranger. Apparently, he had been the leader of the rangers for several years and was no stranger to hard times. This led me to ask Sarah about how Rick became leader, and it led to a very insightful conversation on the hierarchy of the rangers. You know what? I think I recorded it. Uh, let me find it. Oh, here it is. So how did Rick become leader? See, that's a complicated question, because what you're really asking is how do our people choose leaders? I suppose I am asking that, yes. Well, you see, after the fall, some of the native tribes in this area decided to reform. It was mostly Lenape and some Iroquois nations who did, and they did fairly well. That's where the rangers get their tribal systems and customs from. You may have noticed some of the longhouses while moving through the camp, and some of the indigenous garb some of the rangers wear. Are you saying the rangers are Native Americans? <sighs> Don't interrupt, kid. I wasn't finished. And to answer your question, yes and no. At the time of the fall, there were dozens of people camping in this here site, and ones like it. The actual rangers that worked in these campsites became the de facto leaders, and did their best to keep the people that they were camping with alive. They eventually formed their own groups who survived the fall by living off the land and collaborating with one another. Eventually, the leaders of these groups and the leaders of the reformed native tribes were smart enough to realize that if they worked together, they could pool resources and better survive the elements of nature, both magical ones and otherwise. It's a lot easier to take down a Jersey Devil when you've got the best trackers and archers from several different tribes working together. So the rangers are the combination of these campsite survivors and the native tribes? Exactly. But I still don't see where Rick comes in. Slow your roll there, Greenhorn. I'm getting to it. Anyway, those tribes all still exist up and down the Appalachian Trail. Now, they're all pretty similar, especially once people from different tribes started to marry and have kids together. But they've all got their own customs. They all choose a different leader of their small settlements in their own way. But most are partial to a democratic vote. It's the American way, after all. Do you mean the Native Americans or the country? <sighs> I mean both. Now, will you stop interrupting me, damn it? I have a half a mind to cuff your ear. Don't you know how to respect your elders? Uh, sorry. No, it's all right. It's all right, kid. I'm just blowing steam off, is all. My late wife had a bit more patience when it came to the youth. I know I ain't much older than y'all, but I'm old enough, damn it. Now, as I was saying, this here is the main camp. 
It's the largest tribe out of all of them, and the leader of the tribe is the chief ranger. Once the last chief ranger has died or stepped down, all the other tribes send their respective chiefs to sit on a council and elect a new one. To become chief ranger, you have to show courage, cunning, leadership, and most importantly, patience. That's why Ruth was so good at it until she passed. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize. I wouldn't have asked you. No, it's okay, really. Rick was like the son we never had. She taught him everything she knew. He was the best ranger in the field. He knew how to give orders and how to take them. He showed prowess in a battle, and he's not quick to anger. I was in no way surprised when the council picked him. Speak of the devil, as they say. Looks like Rick has returned from the hunt. Wake your friends and let's put some food in their bellies. You'll be wanting to meet him. Uh, if you don't mind my asking, what are they hunting for? Oh, I thought you all knew. No wonder Frank kept avoiding it last night. They're trying to find the rangers that have gone missing. After we broke fast with Sarah, Frank led us to the ranger station to meet Rick. We had to travel through the encampment to get there, as Frank's camp is near the edge and the station is in the center. The encampment is broken up into smaller camps. Most are in visible range of each other, and some are so close it's hard to tell that they're separate camps. This is all based on personal preference and how neighborly the rangers who built the camps are. The only rule is that your camp must be in sight of another, that way if there's any trouble at one of the camps, someone else can spot it. Most of these camps are pretty much divided by family lines. People live with those they love and care for, which is typically family and friends. Some of the camps are divided by duty, though. This is particularly true for the scouts who live on the outskirts of the larger encampment, like Frank and Sarah. That way they can warn others of danger. Most of the camps are made out of tents and longhouses, as Sarah mentioned, but there are some cabins and old RVs used as well. In the winter, families who normally stay in the tents come to live with those who live in the cabins, longhouses, and RVs to stay warm. The chief ranger lives in the center of the encampment at the ranger station. When I say ranger station, I mean that is literally an old forest ranger station that was repurposed to be the home and the base of operations of the chief ranger. This is unmistakably where they got their names and uniforms from. So we just met Murik, and I'd say we have a lot of work cut out for us. First of all, I can certainly see why they choose him as a leader. He's probably mid-forties, and in very good shape for his age. He could certainly kick the crap out of me, not that that's saying much. I can tell from his weathered face and the few scars that he's experienced as well, but that's not surprising given his position in the Rangers. He was friendly enough to us, but his presence was provoking in and of itself. He just seemed to have an air of command about him that said, Do what I say or get out of my goddamn way. It was as if his very stance was a threat, and one he constantly carried, not one that had to be spoken out loud. I recorded the encounter so that I could give a log of the details of our mission. Hello, sir. I'm Moses Shepard, medic of Runner Team 5. Ah, so you're all the runners from Jim Thorpe. Mm, you all look a little green to be on this mission. Well, this is our first mission in this group, but we're all seasoned from our training in the other runner groups. I assure you, we can handle whatever you've got. Uh-huh. You don't have to take my word for it. Captain Martin sent this letter along. Hmm. Yep, looks like everything seems to be in order. Interesting. A blacksmith, a town doctor, a mechanic, an acrobat, 
and a seasoned militia operative. Very diverse group here. I trust Martin, though. He's a good man and a good leader. Plus, you've got that woman that saved an entire group of refugees from Boston. So, that's something. Why don't you just tell us why the fuck we're here? Lydia, I don't think you... No, no, I get it. You have a job to do. Straight and to the point. I like that. Okay, here's the situation. Some of my rangers have been going missing. Now, maybe we lose one guy every one or two years, some new recruit who's sloppy, gets too close to a bear, or doesn't hear the mountain lion skulking up behind him. Hell, one year, we found a seasoned ranger dead next to a Jersey Devil's corpse. He took on a damn beast by himself, but died in the fight. This is different, though. I've had five of my rangers gone missing in the last month and a half. One of them was a rising star. She might have even been able to be the tribe leader, if not the chief ranger. But she went poof, up in the air without a trace. Now it could be the hide-behinds. Hide-behinds? They're these Sasquatch things that sneak up and grab you from behind. At least, we think they're Sasquatches based on the very few tracks we've found. But no one has actually seen one because they're quiet as hell and damn fast. But they usually only operate at night and alone, so they don't attack groups of people. These rangers mostly went missing from scouting parties, and they're smart enough to travel only in the day when in the hide-behinds territory. That's the thing, though. A lot of animals have been acting weird lately, supernatural ones included. We've had packs of wolves attack the camp, Argo pelters have attacked scouting parties and travelers like yourselves, even our hunting and tracking dogs seem uneasy when we take them out, and the goats we keep have been refusing to make us milk. Now, I don't know if this has anything to do with the missing rangers, but the timeline fits for when all this started. Now, I've been doing this for too long to believe it's a coincidence. If they are connected, though, that means if you find what's been making the rangers go missing, and you stop it, then these animal issues should stop as well. Although, I don't see how a bunch of greenhorns like you will have better luck than my men and women who know these woods like the back of their hand. But, I trust Captain Martin and plan on sending Frank with you. He's the most veteran scout we have. No one knows the woods better than him. We appreciate that. Just to be sure, though, is there any more info we should know before we try to find your rangers? Anything at all? No. I gave you everything. Anything else is just... Just what? It's not important. Look, you better not be holding out on us, little man. Moses is right. I don't want to get killed because you were too goddamn proud or scared to tell us something. Lydia, it's all right. You don't have to... No, she's just looking out for her people like anyone would do. Look, what I'm about to tell you is just rumors and hearsay that the fresh recruits have been spreading around. Most likely because they're scared and they want answers to why their friends and mentors have gone missing. I might have done the same were I still as young and naive. They've been saying they've seen men made of logs and sticks in the forest. One recruit even claimed to be attacked by one. More like he saw a shadow and pissed his britches. But the rumors caught on. They're calling them the Wood Warriors. The dumbest shit I ever heard. It could be rumors like you say. Probably is. The mind can create many things in times of fear, but I'll make note of it just in case. I guess we best be going now. If you do stop this madness, Captain Martin has my word that I'll let him scouting and ranger troops in case of an attack. An attack? Yeah, what do you mean? Jim Thorpe is undisturbed by bandits and beasts. It's too large of a compound. What about the demon stronghold to the west? They don't worry you? Do you mean Centralia? That's the one. The town that's constantly burning. Centralia's been like that for a century. Their numbers are too few to cause us a disturbance. Plus, there are constantly scouts watching the West. They cannot take us by surprise. 
every time a demon gets within 30 miles of the town, we know it, and that piece of shit is sent back to hell where it belongs. Well, these are old agreements anyway, from long before I was Chief Ranger. Martin probably just wants to show Jim Thorpe makes good on his promises to ensure the Rangers do the same. I can't say I blame him. You're probably right. Spirit willing, we'll find your people, Rick. I hope you're right. Good luck to you. May the great spirit be with you. Uh, okay then. Shortly after this encounter, we went back to our camp to prepare to leave. While I was gathering my things, a young man approached me. His said his name was Jonathan. He was a ranger, recently promoted. There was something important he had to tell me, he said. He was nervous. His eyes filled with urgency and panic. I let him speak, and this is what he told me. He said he'd seen a woman when he was scouting. A woman weeping. He was too far away to make her out, but he knew she was naked. And he knew she was beautiful. And he knew she was sad. Or maybe not sad, he added. Maybe angry. He was going to get a better view when he saw two jaguars prowling. I swear to God, he insisted. Two jaguars. I had to look them up in a book on big cats, because I had never seen one before. Apparently, that's exactly what Rick told him. No one has ever seen them here, because they're from the jungles of South America. Then Rick told him to stop telling lies. I asked about the crying lady, and he said he moved to get away from the jaguars, and when he looked back, she was gone. No one believed him, but he thought he should tell me as a warning in case we ran into the jaguars. I thanked him and sent him on his way with a blessing from the spirit. I told Frank about it, and he told me that must have been Rick's younger brother, Jonathan. Apparently, John is a decent scout, but not very bright. He isn't crazy or anything, but he likes to tell stories, Frank explained. I think it's because he's jealous of Rick, and he just wants to stand out. It's hard to live in that man's shadow. Lydia overheard. Great, she muttered. We're taking advice from a crazy kid now. No, wait, he's even worse than crazy. He's stupid. There was something about what this young man said, though, that stuck with me. Perhaps it was the urgency of the way he said it. I knew he was telling the truth. Either way, we had to get going. Our search had begun. We gathered our supplies for the trip and did some necessary maintenance, such as Lydia cleaning her guns and Duke sharpening his obscenely large bowie knife. This is not to mention the mace he carries as a weapon. Like a real medieval mace, a spiky metal ball on the end of a stick... He forged it himself. Charlie consulted maps of the area and tried to get a better understanding of the geography where the disappearances took place. I decided to collect some medicinal herbs and went around discussing the history of the camp and the area with some of the older folk while my comrades prepared. Kendra, at my suggestion, came up with something really cool. We traded some supplies for mirrors and then we were able to rig them up on a holster on our shoulders, almost like a rearview mirror in a car. This way, we don't get caught by surprise by those hide-behinds. They're a little unwieldy, but they'll be useful in case we have to go into their territory. To be honest, safety wasn't my only concern. I'm also interested to see these creatures that supposedly no one has ever seen before. They're quite fascinating. Perhaps I could even collect one. But if they're as big as people seem to think, I guess that wouldn't be feasible. Oh, I think it's time to go. I'll update the log if something comes up. We've been hiking for a few hours since my last entry. It's been quite uneventful, but I think I'm a bit thankful for that. 
The tranquility of the forest is actually quite amazing. I hear woodpeckers with their rhythmic knock, knock, knocking as I try to find their next meal. I saw a fawn off in the distance grazing on some grass and flowers, its mother close behind doing the same. We passed a stream that flowed by the trail, and I saw water skaters skittering across the top of the running water and a frog that hungrily attempted to catch one. It eventually settled on a fly that was easier for it to grab. A meal is a meal. We passed through a meadow, and there was a field of the most marvelous daisies. I greedily snatched one up and placed it into my journal for pressing and preservation. Life is beautiful, and I thank the spirit every day for its existence. It's a few hours past midday, and we've decided to rest for a bit. We found a break in the trees, a small meadow with a lonely large oak in the middle. Charlie deftly scrambled up the oak, bringing her lunch with her. She decided it would be a good place to play lookout. I can't say she's wrong. Lydia made some comments about the quiet and uneventfulness of our trip thus far, making her uneasy. But I can tell she's happy to rest. She doesn't have to say it with her words. Her eyes are easy enough to read. She doesn't get too comfortable, though, holding her rifle in her hand like a saint holds a crucifix. And, uh, Kendra? Well, Kendra is napping. As soon as Frank said we should stop for a bit, she found a soft spot under the oak, laid down her pack, and closed her eyes. I believe she is more at ease in the forest than Frank, who's lived here with the rangers his entire life, is. It's like she's an animal herself. Duke, Duke is just cooking up something small on the fire. He whistles while he does so. There's a man I struggle to understand. Frank seems unsurprised by the course of events thus far. It's still the forest, he says. Not every little creature goes bump in the night. I suspect we'll find trouble as we draw closer to the places where the other rangers disappeared, which by my reckoning, we are fairly close to. I believe I should take this opportunity on our short break to read. There's nothing like a good book to relax the mind. I know Samwise and Frodo succeed in their quest, but I can't help reading about their adventures once more. As it turned out, Lydia was right to be uneasy. On our break, we found ourselves ambushed, but this time, we were ready. Charlie was the one who sounded the alarm. From her perch in the oak, she saw the trees rustling in the distance, and she saw the rustling moving towards us. She yelled down, and we armed ourselves. Kendra was awake within an instant, as if she had never been sleeping in the first place. She dumped up with her K-bar in one hand and her pistol in the other. I heard the cocking of Lydia's rifle and felt the earth shift a bit as Duke stood up before me. Frank was at the ready with his own gun. I stood up and grabbed hold of my staff. The scene felt like it took hours, but I know it was over within a minute or two. Several argopelters came upon us at once, but they did not take us by surprise. They began pelting rocks, but we dodged, and the ones that did hit, we easily shrugged off. Lydia fired a shot, and we watched one fall out of the tree, dead as a nail. She shot again and winked a second one in the arm. It was still alive, but not for long, as Frank followed with a shot from his own rifle that sunk right into its chest. Then they realized that hiding and pelting rocks at us would not win them the fight and charged. Duke lifted his mace up and screamed with a deep, rumbling roar. He charged with full force, mace held high above him. When he reached the first of the monkey-like creatures, he brought the spiked ball down in one swift motion, and the blow hit the charging archipelter square on the forehead. It twitched when Duke pulled the mace out of its fractured skull, covered in what could only be blood and brains. 
As he did this, another Argapelter leapt up at him. But before he could grab hold of the large man, Kendra seemingly out of nowhere jumped up and grabbed it, slamming it down to the ground. They entered a grapple in which Kendra jabbed the Argapelter repeatedly with her K-bar till it stopped breathing. Lydia and Frank kept shooting at the charging animals, taking down some and injuring others. But with the amount coming towards us, they couldn't get them all. Now I'm not the best fighter, but I can say I held my own against these things. I didn't do much damage to them, but whenever they got close enough, I was able to knock one back with my staff, giving the others time to reload their guns. At one point, I was pushing two of the Argapelters back with my staff, but I didn't notice a third leap from behind. By the time I heard his yowl, he was already in midair. I braced myself for the impact, but moments before he landed, Charlie came down from the tree. There was a mighty thunk as her back connected with the creature's back, and a second thud as it landed on the ground. She then fell into a roll to brace her landing, and another Argapelter was upon her, trying to take advantage of her prone state. She didn't swing her bat or scramble to her feet, but rather kicked the advancing Argapelter square in the chest with both legs simultaneously, sending it flying through the air and crashing into a tree. I continued to play a defensive role near Lydia and Frank, while Charlie entered the fray with Duke and Kendra. I watched as Duke pummeled the creatures left and right with great force, Kendra fired shots from her pistol at any who dared approach her, and when there was one too many for Duke to handle, she'd quickly flank them and bring them into a deadly grapple with the help of her K-bar. Frank turned to me and said, They shouldn't bother us anymore. No matter what's making them do this, they're not stupid enough to kill themselves over it. As he said this, I noticed a thin trickle of blood running down the side of his skull, and I looked at the rest of my teammates. Lydia had a few scratches on her arm from an argapelter that got past me, Duke was covered in numerous claw marks, and plenty of bruises I'd seen in a day or two. Kendra had even been bitten. The only one who looked unscathed was Charlie, which was unsurprising because of her speed. It was in that moment that I remembered my purpose in the group. Kendra, I said in the most commanding tone I could muster. Come here, I need to make sure that bite doesn't get infected. Lydia, hold this bandage against Frank's head wound until I finish with Kendra. Head injuries tend to bleed a lot, so don't worry if you have to grab another bandage. It's most likely not anything serious. Then I went to work, and I was right. Nothing was serious. I mostly had to disinfect a few cuts and scrapes. I checked Frank for a concussion, and when I saw he was fine, I wrapped his head wound. After all that, I just handed out some aspirin to the team. Except Charlie, who had managed to come out without a scrape. I have a feeling this won't be the last time I'll have to do this. That reminds me. Memo to myself. Stock up on painkillers next chance I can. Now that everyone's injuries have been treated, Frank insists we move on, just in case he was wrong about them being too scared to attack us, and we're just coming back with a larger group. No one objected, so we're moving on, slightly battered and bruised, but again, no worse for the wear. Thank the spirit for that. It's grown much darker since the last entry to the log. We've been trekking for a while. Frank had us holster those mirrors Kendra made onto our shoulders, just in case of hide-behinds. We're out of their territory, but it's dark, and the animals, both supernatural and otherwise, have been acting strange, as Rick told us. We need to make camp soon. We'll be safer in another clearing if we can find one. They're easy for us to defend, and there would be nothing for the hide-behinds to, well, hide behind. I thought I heard something. A rustling in the trees, maybe. I hear it again. This is like the Argapelters, but no, no. This is different. I think I saw something go past my mirror. 
Kendra said she thought she saw something in hers, too. Maybe eyes? Something brushed my shoulder. Run! Run! There's a clearing up ahead. Keep going. I think we're safe. There's no one for them to hide here. They'd have to show themselves to get us. Let's set up a camp here. Let me see. Is everyone here? Uh, Duke, Charlie, Lydia, Kendra. Looks like everyone made it. Wait. Wait a second. Where's Frank? I, I thought he was right. Oh, great spirit. He's gone. Frank's gone. Tribulation was written by Michael Suspaniak and Joshua Gwizdowski. The script was edited by Samantha Paris. The Tribulation logo was designed by Christian Lally. It is based on a tabletop role-playing game played by Michael Suspaniak, Samantha Paris, Kelly Doherty, Don Friedrich, Kimmy Hibbs, and Joshua Gwizdowski. The voice of Moses Shepard is Joshua Gwizdowski. The voice of Lydia Rodriguez was Samantha Paris. The voice of Ranger Sarah is Don Friedrich. The voice of Chief Ranger Rick is Austin Gwizdowski. And the voice of the credits is Samantha Paris. We'd like to apologize for the slight delay in the release of this episode and thank you for your patience. Please subscribe to our podcast to stay tuned for the next episode of Moses' Adventure, which will be released on July 15th. If you enjoy what we do here, please rate us on iTunes and let people know about us by sharing on social media like Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter. And as always, thank you for listening.